You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that's probably the only one that still hasn't read Game of Thrones. Just can't get into it. There's no nudity in the books. <laughs> yeah, there is. There, there is. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today is actually our first listener-voted episode. If you pledge to the $3 tier of our Patreon you get to vote between uh, choices for the episode that you want us to do next. And if you donate nothing, you can vote on my polls and answer questions such as, what part of Dick do you enjoy the most? The diversifying, the investing, the consolidating, or the killing? Killing won by like a huge margin. This was on Twitter, by the way. At, what are you, at R- RJ? Underscore Ono Lickless. Yeah. Today we're talking about J.D. Salinger's novel, The Catcher in the Rye. Um, which is another one that's up there with, like, To Kill a Mockingbird in the sense of how often it is assigned to be read in schools, along with also how often it is challenged and people try to ban it. It's for, like, dumb reasons. It's because there's a prostitute, but there's never even any sex. And they say the F word a couple times, like... Fugazi. Eh, yeah, Fugazi. Um, Fugazi. You're a Fugazi. The uh, the protagonist of the novel, Holden Caulfield, is sort of the prototypical angsty teen per person, and that was like a big thing. Everyone was like, you know, oh, look at this perfectly rendered portrait of teenagehood, and it was very like hashtag relatable at the time. And from what I have gathered, based on what people, well, what kids on social media, what today's teens, TM. Kids ain't relating to Holden in the same way that they did when that book came out, which was in 1951. That that makes sense. Well, you know, times are different now than they were in the 50s. Life is sort of more of a dystopian hell nightmare. And so kids reading it are probably just like, oh, what? You, what's that? You're, you're rich, private school, attending a little snot. You got the depression? We all, we all got the depression, Holden. It, it sucks. It is what it is. So, did you have to read this book? Nope. You didn't have to read any- What did you read in school? Like, before college? Lord of the Flies. Because you you didn't have to read Heart of Darkness. You didn't have to read the- Like, you you missed out on a lot of what I would consider fairly quintessential required reading. And you went to a public school. I did. It's not even like you went to some weird, like, private school. I just- I don't get it. I was in Gifted. They made us read Gifted books. So the other thing that is famous about The Catcher in the Rye that people think about when they think about the novel is its author, old J.D. Salinger, and that he wrote the book and then essentially was just like, fuck all y'all, and became a weird recluse hermit man. It's like he, he didn't disappear 
because he would pop out of the woodwork anytime someone wanted to get the rights to the book and try to film a movie or try to do some sort of adaptation to pop up and like sue them. So he became a recluse not in like the fun like Thomas Pynchon like ooh can you find me? I'm in New York somewhere probably and going to my own lookalike contests but in like a grouchy aim a shotgun at you if you come on my property sort of way. Um, Some people just want to be left alone. Well, some people are like Thomas Pynchon and pretend they want to be left alone, but actually just want more attention. Yeah, and some people actually want to be (laughs) left alone. That's fair. That's acceptable. So I really don't know, like, pretty much anything about J.D. Salinger. To be fair, I don't know about a lot of the authors that we read, which is why RJ is here. It's why RJ is here. It is. So, RJ, tell us about this man, J.D. Salinger, and if he really did actually just want to be left alone. So, Jerome... David Salinger was born January 1st, 1919 and exited stage left on January 27th, 2010. Unlike most Ono Lick Class alumnus who wind up in New York City after their rebellious rebellious college stints, Jerry was born in Manhattan. The best of the boroughs, really. Manhattan is what people are thinking of when they think of New York City. Would you really call it the best of the boroughs as someone who is now been to new york multiple times yeah suck on it outer boroughs what's wrong with brooklyn suck on all it. the stuff we like is in brooklyn all suck the on expensive it. touristy shit is in manhattan that's Man- where elmo is i was gonna say manhattan is where the creepy men in the knockoff elmo costumes try to hug you i enjoy hugs from elmo <laughs> it's not elmo anyway jerry was born into a jewish family of lithuanian descent his dad was soul salinger a man who sold kosher cheese for a living. I did not know there was a large <laughs> enough market to make a job out of it. Well, but there you in, go. In New York, I, I would assume that's a good spot. Specifically, kosher cheese. That's it's very niche. I'll give you that. Like it, it, apart from rabbi, it does kind of sound like the most Jewish job a person can hold. Jerry's mom, Marie, was a German Irish Scot who considered herself Jewish. After marrying a kosher cheesemonger named Saul. (laughs) As one would. And she changed her name to Miriam. Miriam was a stay-at-home mom. Jerry didn't learn his mom was a Gentile until his bar mitzvah when the truth bomb was dropped on him, which technically means Jerry wasn't a Jew if you know how Jew rules work. Jew rules. Uh, Jewishness is matrilineal. That, like, you're Jewish if your mom was Jewish. And this brings me to this week's episode of Jew Rules, Jews Rule, Maximum Jewishness Campus Crawl Tour, Oy Vey, a spinoff of Road Rules with RJ. Okay, that just shaved a week off my life. Hello, all you Gentiles and boobies out there. I promise you this won't be much of a schlep. Uh... But we must get down to Tachlis. Think of it as a nosh for your mind. A tchotchke of knowledge you can display to all the menches you come across on a daily basis. Anyone who's not Jewish is just confused and terrified. To be Jewish, according to the rules some putts came up with, you have to be born to a Jewish woman. Yeah, that thing I just said. Yeah, well, I'm saying it in a much more fun way. I guess. It does not matter what religion your dad belongs to. This is quite the Meshuggah rule, if you ask me. I'm so glad this is what takes up. It takes <laughs> real chutzpah to come up with such a rule. Only a schmuck would think a vagina gives you your ethnic and religious identity, with the schmeckle having no say in the matter. So, how much time did you spend, like, looking up... Like, did you go for a list of common Yiddish words? Maybe. In short, <laughs> circumcised schmeckles matter. Mm. Turtle-headed schmeckles that get schmutzed in their foreskin... 
Well, that's a debate for another episode. This is disgusting and terrible. But for now, we have to get our tushies back to the action. Please. I've done enough kvetching about this issue for now. This week's episode of Jews Rule. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jews Rule! No, that's, well, th- th- that's the second part. <laughs> this week's episode of Jew Rules... Jews rule maximum Jewishness campus crawl tour Oi Bay, a spinoff of World Rules with RJ, was brought to you by all of the great Jewish companies out there: Manischewitz, Waze, Sandisk, DreamWorks, SodaStream, Hebrew National Hot Dogs, and Dunkin' Donuts. Wait, what? Wait, really? Yeah. That last one? Yeah, you can have a real party with all those things. This is true. So back to the Jewish mecca known as New York City. You, New you, York. Want, you, you want you want a second go at that one? No, New York. <laughs> New York City. All the Jews are living out on Long Island, dear. Gonna buy some kosher cheese from Saul, who lives down the street. Him and his wife, Miriam. She's a goy, but we don't talk about that. Anyway, their boy, Jerry, attended public schools in the west side of Manhattan. There's no indication if Jerry ran with the Jets or if he ran with the Sharks. (coughs) He seems more like a Sharks kind of guy to me, though. But when you're a Jet, you're a Jet all the way. That's why he's maybe more of a Sharks kind of guy. I guess. At the age of 13, maybe because of all that West Side gang violence spilling into the public school, Jerry was enrolled in a private school called the McBurney School. Jerry did his best to fit in. His family called him Sonny, and that just wasn't working for him. And Jerome, what a loser of a name. So instead, he tried to pass himself off as J-Dog, which is where the D and JD comes from. (laughs) He's pointed himself away from the mic. <laughs> nope, nope, there it goes. You're your own biggest fan. Like I said, it's been two weeks. It's a pretty good one. Yeah, you used, you used this joke already, though. I did? Yes, you decided Zora Neale Hurston's name was Z-Dog. Oh, well, this is J-Dog. Great minds think alike. <laughs> Zora Neale Hurston and J.D. Salinger or R.J. and R.J.? The two of them. Uh, you missed your opportunity to name yourself R.D. and call yourself R-Dog. <laughs> I am R-Dog. <laughs> Don't dox me. Our jog. (laughs) Okay, fine, fine. He tried going by Jerry. You know, like I've been calling him all along. It's true. I didn't call you on it. That and that peanut guy who notices the weird things about life, like noticing how bees make very bad protagonists in animated movies. That peanut guy? Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld. Always going on about peanuts. He was also a bee. Yep. No, no, no. All the, all, all the rest of it is good. Where, what the, where the hell is Jerry Seinfeld a peanut guy? He was always talking about peanuts on airplanes. Yeah, so wouldn't it make more sense to He's say the guy, guy talking about airline food? The, what's the deal with airline food? Oh, peanuts. I don't think he ever, 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 well, what's the deal with peanuts? I think he did. We'll go to the judges on that. There are no judges. While enrolled at McBurney, Jerry got involved in fencing, writing for the school newspaper, and acting in a number of school plays. Apparently... Out of all these things, he was the best at acting. Biographers say he had a particularly innate talent for drama. Well, too bad. So sad. Daddy Salinger wasn't going to have his only son become an actor and decided to set Jerry's ass straight. We only sell kosher cheese in this family, son. They pulled him out of McBurney and sent him to the Valley Forge Military Academy in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Oof. That'll straighten Jerry right out. All was not lost for Jerry. As he was able to continue writing in secret, literally, as biographers put it, quote, under the covers at night with the aid of a flashlight. Jeez. He graduated in 1936 at the age of 17. Jerry was considering a career in education, in particular special education, but his dad said that was unacceptable and instead told him that he should consider becoming a meat importer-exporter. Jeez, his dad. 
If, if it's not related to kosher food, you're not allowed to do it, son. And so Jerry was exported to become a meat importer-exporter first in Vienna, home of the little sausages that come in a can and not in your hand, before he moved to the Polish city named... I have no idea how to say that. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> Polish city Oh, no. Oh. That's not how you say it either. Bogosits. Bogosits. We are bad, bad. We should be looking this up instead of just fucking it up. It's a Polish city with a lot of consonants. Nine waters. Nine waters, one vowel. The meat business being a dirty game at the time, like literally, did you ever read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair? Well, we're going to get there someday. Jerry was disgusted by the whole business, and so he decided importing and exporting was not for him. After leaving Europe, he returned stateside and enrolled at Ursinus, which is better than Uranus, did college you... in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. Co- Collegeville? He yeah. went to college in Collegeville. I mean, I guess that's a it, good place for that. Ursinus College in Collegeville. I'm pretty sure it's... Your 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 sinus your sinus your sinus your sinus I think it's your sinus. Well, because it's probably like Ursula, like the bear. So that's Uranus. <laughs> just 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 talk. He didn't really click at your sinus, and so he snotted his way out. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. So you just want to keep mispronouncing it so that you can make that joke. And enrolled over at Columbia University. There he found a mentor, Whit Burnett, a longtime editor of Story Magazine who helped Jerry get some of his first works published in 1940, when Jerry was 21. Around the same time, Jerry started dating his first real love, Una O'Neill. Hottie alert. While they dated, he would write her long love letters, as he had to spend time apart from her as he took up a job on cruise ships. He worked as an activity director and performer. Eventually, Una broke things off and got with some guy named Charlie Chaplin. Sounds like an asshole. Yeah. While cruising the Caribbean, Jerry continued to submit work for publication. In particular, he submitted seven short stories to The New Yorker. All of them were rejected. However, the eighth time was the charm, and The New Yorker decided to accept the work called Soit Rebellion Off Madison, a Manhattan-set story about a disaffected teenager named Holden Coalfield with pre-war jitters. But bad luck. Within weeks of accepting the short story, Pearl Harbor was attacked and the New Yorker decided that the attack made the short story unpublishable at the current time and it would not be published for another five years. That's definitely the biggest tragedy wrought by Pearl Harbor. Well, and then that movie that came out like a decade ago, that Mm. was probably the biggest tragedy of all. (laughs) Fair. Also, probably more than a decade ago by now. Shortly thereafter, Jerry was drafted into the army. He invaded Utah Beach on D-Day and was part of the war effort in the Battle of the Bulge. A lot of Jerry's work in Europe focused on counterintelligence as he knew how to proficiently speak both French and German. Cool. In April 1945, Jerry was part of the battalion that helped liberate Dachau's uh, concentration camps. During his time in the army, Jerry worked his way up to the rank of staff sergeant and served in a total of five campaigns. While making his way from Normandy into Germany, Jerry arranged to meet recent Ono Lickwass alum, Ernest Hemingway. Jerry was heavily influenced by Papa Hemingway's work as a war correspondent and fangirled all over him. <laughs> After the meeting, Jerry wrote that he found Papa to be much friendlier and more modest than his gruff public persona would have had him believe. Of Jerry, Papa wrote, quote, Jesus, he has a hell of a talent. 
I don't know, for some reason I thought that was just gonna go in a completely different direction. Like, oh, he seems so much friendlier than Ernest. I mean, we were like, Jesus, this kid doesn't shut up. But... The two exchanged letters for years after the war. In 1946, Jerry wrote that the meeting with Papa during the war was one of the few positive memories that he had from that time, and that he was working on a play about Holden Coalfield and hoped to play the part himself. Um, that's kind of weird since he was, what, in his mid-twenties at this point? Yeah. And... Holden's like 16. He wanted to play Holden in his like 40s. Okay. <laughs> Upon returning home after the war, Jerry was hospitalized due to combat related stress. He told his daughter, quote, You never really get the smell of burning flesh out of your nose entirely. Yeah. No I matter bet. how long you live. I bet. So yeah, had some had some PTSD going on there. He helped liberate Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. That's why I said, yeah. I bet. <laughs> Like, I imagine that kind of shit would stay with you for the rest of your life. That was not a sarcastic, I, I bet. I <laughs> in the mid-1940s, Jerry had his works published in Collier's Magazine and the Saturday Evening Post. However, his dream of getting published in The New Yorker continued to elude him as he continued to receive rejection after rejection from them. In fact, 15 of Jerry's works were rejected by The New Yorker in 1945 alone. Wow, dude was persistent. After some time recuperating back at home, Jerry actually went back across the pond to work on denazification. Sadly, this was not anything like Inglorious Bastards or some other badass kind of secret mission to off Nazis. Rather, it was literally going through Germany and getting rid of Nazi symbols. Oh, well, I mean, it's good, but it's, it is a lot less cool. While in Europe working on destroying the artifacts of losers, he met Sylvia Welter. The two fell in love and were married while in Europe. In 1946, the two came back to the U.S. and the marriage quickly fell apart. I smell someone trying to become a resident. Uh, yeah, I smell someone trying to become Hemingway. <laughs> the marriage lasted all of eight months, and after that, the two never really spoke or saw each other ever again. By the late 1940s, Jerry had published a book of short stories and thus had become a moderately successful writer. He also became an avid follower of Zen Buddhism. He was so into Zen Buddhism that when he went out on dates with women, he would give them reading lists about Zen Buddhism. Oh my god. <laughs> so they could get up to speed. Basically, he sounds like an insufferable paleo diet essential oil shill. A little bit there. Yeah. No thanks. <laughs> I'm not interested. Thank you. Nah, like I'm really into Zen Buddhism now. And if we're going to date, you got to just like get on my level. As for his dream of getting something published in The New Yorker. In 1947, Jerry submitted a story titled The Banana Fish. He was not outright rejected. Moderate success. <laughs> what, he was partially rejected? Instead, he was told to continue to edit it. And eventually, a year later, The New Yorker decided that it was good enough to publish in their magazine. God, finally. It was published under the title A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. The story was a hit and going forward, Jerry published exclusively with The New Yorker. Oh, la-di-da. I got that foot in the door. Jerry, wanting some financial security, dabbled in attempting to sell the rights of his works to Hollywood. The only one he sold initially was Uncle Wiggily in Connecticut. What the fuck? Jerry had high hopes that the story would be made into a blockbuster. Well, the movie turned out to be a flop. It's called Uncle Wiggily in Connecticut. <laughs> a bastardization of the text. Big surprise. Womp womp. Jerry vowed to never sell the rights to any of his works ever again. As Jerry was popular, he would be asked for interviews. In one that he actually gave, he was asked about his literary influences. He answered, quote, A writer 
when he's asked to discuss his craft, ought to get up and call out in a loud voice just the names of the writers he loves. I love Kafka, Flaubert, Tolstoy, Chekhov, Dostoyevsky, Proust? Proust? Uh, Proust? Proust? Something. Uh, Rilke, Yorka, Keats, Rambeau, Burns. Was there anyone he didn't love? Bronte, Austin, (laughs) James, Blake, Coleridge. I won't name any living writers. I don't think it's right. Note, O'Casey, which was also one of the other names he listed, was in fact living at the time. (laughs) Like a Jerry trying to kill people with his words. (laughs) After years of practicing Zen Buddhism, Jerry became an ardent follower of... Can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) A very particular kind of Hinduism, which advocated celibacy as well as ignoring human responsibilities, like family, in order to achieve enlightenment. In 1951, The Catcher in the Rye was published. It was a financial hit and spent 30 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. Jerry's response to this success, to withdraw from public life. After all, he wanted to get his enlightenment on, and all this earthly nonsense would just get in the way of such enlightenment. Well, then why was he publishing things? Make money. But money is earthly possessions, which is blocking the enlightenment. As such, he moved from New York to Connecticut. He ceased to publish any more work. He was rarely seen in public, and he lost contact with most friends. In fact, the only friend he kept in contact with was his childhood friend, the jurist known as Learned Hand. Huh. That's Judge Learned Hand to all you plebes out there. That's so weird, because we, okay, podcast doesn't know, we make jokes all the time about Judge Learned Hand, because, like, holy shit, what a name. If you're going to name your kid Learned Hand, what choice do they have but to go to law school and become a judge? Like, I imagine an alternate universe in which he was, like, a stripper. The stripper learned hand. Something. Some career other than a judge. So Learned Hand and JD were buddies. Yep. That's interesting. In his reclusion, Jerry did meet Claire Douglas, who would become his wife. The two would have two children, Margaret and Matthew. Daughter Margaret claimed in a memoir that her parents may have never gotten married and she may never have been born if it was not for the fact Jerry did some more readings, changed his religion again, this time to a religion that argued for the possibility of, of enlightenment to those following the path of the householder, basically a married person with children. So the opposite of what he was doing before. Yep, basically enlightenment for the heteronormatives out there. Nice. If encouraging your new wife to take part in this weird religious thing was not suspect enough, Jerry also asked Claire to drop out of school four months shy of her graduation from Radcliffe College. Uh, what's the age difference here between oh. Mr. J.D. and Miss Claire? Big. Anyway, she happily obliged. You're not gonna, not gonna laugh. I don't know specifically each decades. Oh, boy. The whole religious thing, not being weird enough for Jerry, led Jerry to expand his horizons. Are, are you saying that any religion that is not Western is weird? Just so you know, I skipped over. The way they were initiated into their most recent religion was... Literally in the storefront of a store in Washington, D.C. So, like, they got in a car to go to D.C. to then be initiated. What was the store? They don't have the name. A small storefront. I mean, that's weird. Fair enough. Anyway, Jerry continued to search the horizon for something new, something more exciting. And what was looking back at him? John Travolta. Scientology? More specifically, L. Ron Hubbard and Dianetics. Oh my god, Jamie Salinger became a Scientologist? Also known as Scientology. Holy shit. Yep, old Jerry went all Jerry Maguire on us. <laughs> okay, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> we should have seen that twist coming. 
He wanted someone to show him the money. And that was less good. This brings us to the hotly anticipated bi-weekly update known as Financing with RJ. I show you people the money. Uh, (laughs) And this was Financing with RJ. (laughs) I want you people to show other people the money. I want the world to see the money we all have to show off. And I want all of us to have more money to show off. Dollar dollar bills everywhere. You know how to get them bills? By not dropping out of school four months before graduation. Like, now you've sunk time and money in. Yeah. And you got nothing to show for it. Yeah. You also know how to get them bills? Steering clear of guys who give you a reading list for obscure and religious yoga on the first date. Yeah. I'm fine and good with y'all finding a vitamin and everything, but be smart about it. This week's Financing with RJ is brought to you by the Anglican Church. <laughs> Stay in school and get divorced whenever you want. Church of England. Yeah. Yeah, Church of England. The ones who tortured John Dunn's family and, like, hounded him almost to his death. They paid the most for this week's spot. So, the Diagnetics phase... The show, the show is not sponsored by the Church of England. No, only the RJ spot. Ah. So, the Diagnetics phase of Jerry's life was actually short-lived, but the man needed some sort of guiding light. In quick succession, he got into Christian science, homeopathy, acupuncture, and macrobiotics. If he'd lived just a little bit longer, he could have tried some of Tom Brady's magic sweat water. TB12. <laughs> The most troubling phase for the family was likely the Christian science phase. At one point, while an infant, Margaret got pretty sick. Jerry, however, having embraced the tenets of Christian science, refused to take her to a doctor. This was a bad strategy in curing whatever Margaret had, and she suffered for a long time. Wait, so Christian science means not using science? Apparently in Jerry's mind. That's confusing. I don't think Jerry stands for all the followers of Christian science. Fair enough. But in Jerry's mind... He wrote off Western uh, medicine. Margaret wrote in her memoir that Jerry's actions drove Mommy Salinger, quote, over the edge. And Mommy confided in her later in life that she had plans to murder Margaret. Oh, my God. To save her from suffering without seeing a doctor and then commit suicide. Whoa, that's okay. Hey, Margaret, Mommy was at, and, and she's not now. Mommy would like to stress that everything's chill now. But at some point was thinking about just murdering you. Just, just, you know, cuz. Cuz daddy is just a bastard, I guess. Luckily, Mommy Salinger abandoned that plan and instead just took Margaret and ran away with her. Okay, that's fine. That's acceptable. Far, far away from Jerry. Good. Unfortunately, Jerry persuaded Claire to return home with Margaret. Oh. And they lived happily ever after. I doubt that. Nah! There we go. (laughs) They would eventually divorce after Jerry continued his reclusive ways and in many ways made Claire, in her words, a virtual prisoner. Wise move to end that one, Claire. Mm. Jerry was not out of the game, though. Oh, no. Men have needs. Men will always have needs. Gross, gross needs. So what is a recluse to do with those needs? Well, in Jerry's case, he wrote letters to young women writers as soon as they popped up on the literary scene. Case in point, Joyce Maynard. In 1972, Joyce was attending Yale. She had written for Seventeen Magazine and just took a job with the New York Times. She was 18. Jerry, 53. Mm. He wrote Joyce a letter warning her about fame and the ways it can hurt. The two exchanged 25 letters before Joyce decided, hey, you know what? Maybe staying with this guy in his weird, reclusive house is a good idea. 
No, no. Okay, no, okay. Joyce. No, <laughs> it was not a good idea. Joyce is 18. She doesn't know any better. She's being fucking pre- predatored. She's being to catch a predator. It took her nine months of being with him to realize this was a bad idea. That's longer than I would think. He's sliding into the DMs of young writers. Actually, Joyce uncovered that this was just Jerry's move and she was the first to bite. Apparently, he was pretty good in these love letters, though. He met his final wife this way, Colleen. Oh my god, who there was, was another one. Who was already engaged to someone else when she first got the letter from old Jerry. She was also 40 years younger than Jerry, but uh. age is just a number. What? The, okay, so this is what... I'm going to retreat from the public eye so that no one sees me creepily trying to bang kids that I could be their dad. She was engaged. And this guy wrote such a good cool letter. She's like, yeah, this engagement's not going to work. Let me go be with this guy who's 40 years older than me and so reckless. It must have been a hell of a goddamn letter. Uh, Jerry's reclusive ways garnered interest from the public and other writers. One writer tracked down about 20 years worth of Jerry's letters that he wrote to other people and tried to publish them to piece Jerry's life together. However, Jerry sued to stop the publication of the book, citing the fact that he did not consent and the words being his meant that he had control over the publication. Jerry won the case, so the book was not published. However, because it was a court case, some of the letters were read into the record, including this juicy tidbit about his first love, Una, who oh, the, left the, him. This I know. I who this. left him for Charlie Chaplin. Jerry wrote, quote, I can see them at home evenings. Chaplin, squatting, gray and nude, atop his chiffonier swinging his thyroid around his head by his bamboo cane like a dead rat una in an aquamarine gown applauding madly from the bathroom bitter much eventually jerry settled into his old and quiet life breaking his hip and dying from natural causes (laughs) january 27 2010 at the age of 91 the end I mean, I could also add that he did write other stuff that will be published later in life. It just hasn't been published yet. Yeah, he put a, like, time lock on when it's allowed to be published. Yeah, uh, the, the biggest one being The Ocean Full of Bowling Balls, which is about the death of Kenneth Caulfield. Basically, the character Allie in Catcher in the Rye. Ah. So, basically, a prequel. He wrote it. It actually was leaked online back in the early teens, but then it was taken down. It's being held in Princeton's University Library. You can actually go and see it, but you can't take it out and you can't take pictures. Um, That's interesting. And so it's going to be published at some point. It's just there. What is it with him and just these titles? Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut, A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, Ocean Full of Bowling Balls. At this point, Catcher in the Rye, which is a weird title in and of itself, looks just super normal by comparison. Also, uh... Harkening back to Megan's earlier point that this is one of the most attempted to be banned books. Someone actually did the math. There are 237 goddams, 58 <laughs> bastards, and 31 Christ's sakes. Christ's sakes. And one incident of flatulence. Oh, no, there's a <laughs> fart. Yep. Wait, so you're not mentioning the what? The three or four fuck yous? They're gra- I mean, they're graffiti, but they're not verbal fuck yous, but they're there. Well... The writer for The Catholic World oh, didn't, didn't bother to mention that. Didn't even want to put that. We're not even touching that one. Because there's flatulence in there, though. We gotta protect the kids from the flatulence. Megan, I've told you about the man. You have. Tell us about the text. Okay, so Catcher in the Rye, polarizing book though it is, is just hugely influential. Like, it was the 
coming-of-age teen angst novel and has influenced all kinds of angsty teen books that are famous in their own rights, including The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Less Than Zero, and apparently even The Bell Jar. It apparently also influenced a lot of dudes who shot people. Mark David Chapman, due to shot John Lennon, tried to get his name changed to Holden Caulfield and literally read a passage from the novel during his sentencing. John Hinckley Jr., who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan, also had the book on him. Uh, Robert John Bardo, what is with these three named dudes? He uh, stalked and murdered an actress named Rebecca Schaefer, and he had the book physically on his person when he killed her, so that's a thing. After we go through the book, I'm going to kind of break that down a little more and talk about it more. But for now, let's get into Holden Caulfield. So, The Catcher in the Rye, as it is caught. The novel opens with the framing device of Holden convalescing from a mysterious incident that has placed him in a quote-unquote rest home. But just, you know, not like the old people kind. Uh, The incident was a total mental breakdown, but we'll get there. He instead tells us about his brother DB, a World War II veteran who's a really good writer, but went to Hollywood to write movies, so fuck him for selling out. He's a phony! Everybody's a phony. In particular, I think he uh, derides just Hollywood and filmmaking... In general. general. Oh yeah, Holden hates movies in general, but he's mad because DB is apparently like a really talented writer, so he feels like he's just wasting his time not writing beautiful things. I don't know. From there, Holden drifts to relating the events that led him to having his breakdown. It starts at Pensy Prep, a posh boarding school in Pennsylvania that Holden hates and has completely blown off and thus has been given the boot from. It's the end of the fall term and he has before Christmas break to get his ass out of there, but Holden doesn't care. Obviously. Also, he feels it's necessary to tell us there's a big school football game going on, but that he has no interest in attending it because it's dumb. But he lets it slip to the reader that it's also because the captain of the fencing team will be there. And Holden doesn't want to see him because that guy's super pissed at Holden for losing all of their equipment on the subway. This is kind of our first glimpse at Holden inadvertently, like, telling the truth, so to speak. He admits early on that he's a big liar and therefore an unreliable narrator, but he also seems to sort of compulsively double back on himself. And so we get moments like this where it's like, football's stupid, sports are stupid. Also, I know if I go there, I'll get my ass kicked for screwing over my fencing team. But mostly, I'm not going because sports are stupid. Yeah. So, like, Holden's a little shit. But anyway... Before he leaves the school forever, he goes to see one of the few teachers he doesn't hate, Mr. Spencer, the history teacher. He goes to his house, finds that Mr. Spencer has the flu and is super gross right now and is also disappointed in Holden because he knows that the kid is smart, but also had to flunk him because Holden just can't be bothered to give a damn because that's, you know, easier than trying. He tries to give Holden an inspiring speech about getting his shit together while Holden's just like, why the fuck did I even come here again? Mr. Spencer's illness bathrobe is just gross. His legs are weird. Is he still talking? Whatevs. Holden, out. He heads to his dorm room, where he tries to read Out of Africa and wears his famously doofy red hunting hat. This dude named Ackley bursts in to annoy him, and Holden tells us that Ackley is a gross, irritating guy with no friends who is constantly popping pimples and clipping his toenails in other people's rooms. Like Holden's room. Oh, you don't want to do it in your own room. What? Why are you clipping your toenails in other people's rooms? That's really gross. I don't know, Megan, you tell me. I don't. Why do you do it? I don't. Yep. I clip my toenails in the bathroom like a reasonable person. Mm. Anyway. For some reason, though, Holden puts up with him. Ackley asks why Holden's wearing a deer shooting hat, and Holden tells him, no, no, no. It's a people shooting hat. I shoot people in this hat. 
And wow, is that supposed to be the quirky kind of misanthropic or a giant red flag that maybe something is wrong with Holden? Either way, yikes. Holden's roommate, Stradlader, Stradlader, Stradlader? Sure. Stradlader comes in and Ackley scampers off to go pop some pimples or whatever. Stradlader is the opposite of Ackley. He's handsome and not gross and a big man on campus who's a hit with the ladies. Holden does not like Stradlader either, but spends a good chunk of the chapter we spend with Stradlader describing in intense detail how handsome he is. So Stradlader keeps making Holden write English papers for him, which Holden does for some reason, which seems out of character with what we know of this kid so far, like he doesn't even do his own homework. But anyway, he's writing this one because Stradlader is too busy prepping for a date with a girl named Jane that Holden knows and that Straddlestrut refers to as Jean. This gets Holden mad, because it means Stradlader only thinks she's hot and doesn't care about the things that Holden knows about her, like that she did ballet, and played checkers really bad, and has a crazy alcoholic stepdad who will run around the house naked. Uh, okay. Anyway, Stradlader says, Strad you later. Boo. Oh. Whatever. And heads out on his date. Holden tries to work on the essay, but can only think about his younger brother, Allie, who died of leukemia some years before. Allie was apparently a sweet, smart kid who would write poems on his baseball glove, presumably because no one would give him a piece of paper. When he died, Holden smashed every window in the family garage and tried to smash all the windows in their cars before he broke his hand. And no one seemed to think this was an issue. That maybe this kid who just had his brother die and can only process his emotions through breaking shit might need, like, some counseling and help to get through this. No? Nope. Just gonna send him off to more boarding schools? Cool. Gotta do something with him. 1951. Stradolatz comes back and reads Holden's essay and is like, this is trash. Like, why would I turn in a paper about your dead brother? No wonder you're flunking out. And Holden's all like, hey, did you have sex with that girl I like, maybe? And he's like, dude, I'm not gonna talk about that. And Holden decides that means yes and tries to fight him. But Holden's got, like, twiggy little baby limbs and Strads pins him down pretty easily. But Holden just keeps crying and yelling shit at him until Stradletter snaps and gives Holden a bloody nose. He's worried he legit hurt him, but Holden just keeps crying and screaming insults until it gets weird and Stradlater strads right out of there. Stradlater. <laughs> that's that's based. <laughs> Holden debates joining a monastery, but is like, I bet they're all filled with stupid bastards anyway, which is not a paraphrase and probably why <laughs> religious folks aren't super fond of the book. <laughs> Um, and instead he gathers up all his money, which is a pretty decent amount because he has a grandma who regularly sends him money because he's a spoiled little fucker. He puts on his stupid hat and he sneaks out of school for a grand adventure yelling, sleep tight, you morons, as he leaves and then immediately almost eats shit tripping over some peanut shells. Oh, Holden, you obnoxious little fucker. Holden gets on the train to New York and chats up an older woman who turns out to be the mom of one of his classmates. Awkward. (laughs) (laughs) You're wrong. Very different reactions to that. I like where this is going. (laughs) He hates this classmate, because of course he does. He hates everyone. You know how to get back at him? Yeah, fuck his mom. (laughs) Well, really, you fuck their dad, but mom will do in a pinch. Uh, He tells wild lies about what a great dude this kid is because lies just keep flying out of his mouth hole. Eventually, it occurs to the hot mom that it's weird that Holden's on a train to New York at night several days before the term is actually over, and so he tells her it's because he's getting a brain tumor operation. Smooth. After this, Holden reaches Penn Station. There, he stares at a payphone, desperately tries to think of someone that he could call because he's just sort of constantly teetering between I hate everyone or... I desperately require human interaction or I will die. Which, to be fair, sounds pretty teenagery. 
Uh, he runs through some names, his brother DB, his little sister Phoebe, some girls that he likes, but he ends up not calling anyone because symbolism. Uh, instead, he takes a cab to the Edmonton Hotel, where he asks the driver if he knows where the ducks in Central Park go during the winter, and the driver's like, I don't fucking know, dude. So then Holden tries to get him to buy him alcohol. Doesn't work. He gets a room, and as he looks out his window, he can see other people in their hotel rooms doing, like, weird sex things. Like a couple squirting water into each other's mouths. Like you do. Oh, Donald. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> only in Russia. Yeah, only in what happens in Russia stays in Russia. Uh, Holden claims that this is weird and, quote, perverty, but apparently he's kind of into it because he gets all puberty horny and calls a girl whose number he got from a friend who's all like, hey, this girl is super easy. So that's a thing. Holden calls her and tries to sound manly and invites her out for drinks. And she's like, yeah, no, it's super late, but I'll meet you tomorrow, which is honestly better than anything he has any right to. But Holden's just like, but I'm horny now. And then hangs up on her. Instead, he goes down to the hotel lounge, attempts to get a drink from the bar. And the bartender's just like, yeah, right. And gives him a Coke. Holden sees three cute girls, and despite his immediate impression that they're morons, tries very hard to hit on them. The rest of the chapter is literally just Holden being like, these girls are shallow, stupid idiots, and they're not even really pretty while trying really, really hard to successfully flirt with them. It doesn't work, and the girls ditch him with the tab, and Holden decides he was correct in the assessment that these girls were morons despite the fact that he's the moron paying the bar tab. And that's that's more of that, that Holden thing where it's like wow these girls they're so dumb and they're kind of ugly but i i I really want them to like me please why won't they like me oh they left me yeah that just shows they were dumb to begin with all the time always after that little adventure he sits around and thinks about jane some more and all the times they almost but not quite had sex and then he seems like he really likes her a lot thinking about genuine human feelings bums him out though So he stops doing that and takes a cab out to a piano bar, wherein he again inquires about ducks in Central Park, and the cabbie again doesn't have an answer. Such is life's mysteries. At the piano bar, no one cares that Holden is a literal actual child, and he drinks a scotch and soda, which I think might be like the least relatable teen thing he does. That's not what a shitty 16-year-old drinks when given free reign to order alcohol. That's like what a 50-year-old mortgage broker drinks. Yeah, what would a underage teen order at the bar? Uh, I guess, like, Smirnoff Ice didn't exist yet. No, did not exist. <laughs> well, okay, well, what would you try to put yourself back into your teenage self? What would you order if you, a bartender miraculously just went like, yeah, what do you want? Whiskey straight. <laughs> Two yeah. fingers, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then you'd, what, throw it up? No. How much were you drinking at 16? So much. I guess. What were you ordering when you were 16? I wasn't ordering anything when I was 16. I was drinking, like, fucking Smirnoff oh, ice that, like, exist. my friend was able to get from their sister. Oh, well, this is the 50s. In the, okay, 50s, I guess I would probably order, like, vodka and cranberry juice because the vodka would make me seem like a real adult, but the cranberry juice would mask the vodka flavor. I don't know if we had vodka in this country during the Cold War, but be that as it may. All the vodka only comes from Russia. We don't make yeah. any vodka here. Oh, in the 50s? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't. We could look that up and see if you're wrong, but... When? Vodka. America. <laughs> I'm just saying, what 16-year-old immediately goes for scotch? I guess he's a fancy one because his dad's a corporate lawyer, as we find out, so... Maybe that's why he just drinks it. He drinks his dad's scotch at home. The vodka started taking off in, like, the mid-50s. 
I'm not sure exactly why. Oh, so it would have been okay. the new thing on the street. Fine. The kids wouldn't have been doing it yet. No. Either way, Holden drinks and watches people act dumb, like a dude feeling up his date under the table while he talks about his roommate having committed suicide, which Holden thinks is pretty horrible, and I mean, we're in agreement on that one. When he's done drinking and enjoying hating people in this new and exciting venue, he walks in the freezing cold back to his hotel. At the hotel, he gets into the elevator, and the elevator guy, because there's an elevator guy, because this is a fancy hotel in the 50s, and back then there were dudes in elevators whose, like, whole jobs were to press a button, which is just wild to me. Like, you get in the elevator, and there's a special man to press the button for you. It's, it's a button. You know, in 2018, there's still men who... And women who stand in bathrooms to dry my hands for me. And that's still really weird. I mean, without really drying your hands, they're, they're like saying, like, I have this special fancy soap and also like a mint, I guess. And until I believe this year in New Jersey, there were people there to pump your gas for you. In fact, you were not allowed to pump your own gas. Yeah, that's still really weird to me, too. And watching people just struggle desperately to pump their own gas on social media was pretty entertaining. But even then, like that, that's OK. The, the pump your own gas thing is ridiculous, but this is just pushing in a button. Maybe people don't know... They uh, had a whole dude for that! How to read the numbers. (laughs) Well, apparently the life of an elevator man was a hard one. Because this particular elevator man has a side hustle as a pimp. And he asks Holden if he wants to be set up with a prostitute. Because he thinks that Holden is 22, because that's what Holden lied to him about. And Holden is very tall and has a lot of gray hair for a teenager. Like, um, like the Catch Me If You Can boy. Tom Hanks. No, (laughs) not Tom Hanks. And Holden's just like, yeah, sure, I'm kind of drunk, and I've been horny for, like, at least ten hours now. So he goes up to his room and changes his clothes and brushes his teeth for the prostitute, and, like, God damn it, that's kind of adorable. He's a whiny, cynical little shithead, but that's just sort of so, like, weirdly cute. Like, oh, girl's coming to my room, I'm gonna make sure I'm wearing a nice shirt, go brush my teeth, I'm gonna pay her for sex. Also, he admits to the reader that, yeah, he's a virgin. Not that he hasn't had, like, a bunch of opportunities to get his bone on, he just, you know, hasn't. So he's not incel. No. Because <laughs> sex is kind of weird, and he doesn't get it, and also he thinks doing sex to women feels sort of degrading to women, and he ties himself up in a good little mental pretzel over that one, and then the prostitute comes into the room. Her name is Sunny, and she- wow, that was what you said people used to call J.D. Salinger, huh? Yeah, that's what the family tried to call him. Don't read too much into that one. Uh, so her name's Sunny, and she's super nervous too, probably because she seems to be the actual age as Holden, like she's also a teenager. They chat awkwardly, and in the end, Holden can't go through with it. Sunny gets mad and demands her $5 anyway. Now, adjusted for inflation, it's about 50 bucks. Why are you the way, the, way the wage hasn't kept up with inflation, just like everything else in this world. It's true. So Holden pays her the five bucks, but then she decides she actually wants ten, and Holden's like, no, and he hustles her out of the room. She comes back with her elevator pimp, and they just take the other five bucks from Holden's wallet, and he starts crying, and he calls the elevator pimp man a goddamn dirty moron, and so the dude punches him in the stomach, and Holden cries some more, as he does, and they leave him, and he makes himself feel better by pretending that the elevator pimp actually shot him, and he's dying. Someone help Holden, please. Like, 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 actually help him. He wakes up the next morning, calls a different girl who's not Jane, um, her name is Sally, and makes a date with her to go see a movie, and then goes to breakfast, where he meets some nuns, and they talk about Shakespeare, and he gives them 13 whole dollars for their collection, which they're just like, whoa, kid, come on, dude, because that's nearly 130 fucking dollars in today money. But Holden just feels so uncomfortable that he wants to keep giving them more money, and then they leave. Yeah. Killing time before his date... Holden wanders around and buys a rare record for his kid sister Phoebe called Little Sally Beans. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. It just sounds funny. Like, Little little Sally Beans. (laughs) That's a good hit. 
Yeah. One of my faves. It's a real club banger. <laughs> when the beat drops on Little Sally Beans, like, the crowd just goes fucking wild. So, he buys the record, and then he passes a family-leaving church where a little kid is dancing around, singing the phrase, When a body catch a body coming through the rye. Which sounds like a fucking word salad to me, but makes Holden smile for some reason. Uh, he goes to a park and helps a kid lace up their skates to go ice skating and is like, Hey kid, you want me to, like, get you hot chocolate or something? And it's in the same kind of way that he just, like, desperately wants to throw money at the nuns, but the kid is like, Uh, no, stranger danger, and runs away. Holden goes to the Natural History Museum, but he hates it, because it's not exactly the same as it was when he was a kid. And he wishes that some parts of the museum could just freeze and stay the same forever. Is a pattern beginning to emerge here. Wishes. Wishes. That's unrelated, but. Not really. I mean, the whole thing with Disney is you're always going to be that kid. That's true, actually. Holden. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, at first, Holden would love Disney because it would always be innocent. But he actually would hate Disney because it's a phony, fake kind of innocence. He meets up with Sally. They go see a show. And he hates everyone the whole time, as he does. He finds the show depressing. He finds Sally depressing. He finds her desire to go ice skating depressing. It's almost as if he has depression. They get into a fight because Holden wants to run away to a cabin in the woods and Sally thinks he's a crazy person and the date ends and Holden thinks that really he doesn't like Sally at all and she sucks but he still totally would have run away to the woods with her. After this, he calls Jane but hangs up before anyone can answer. And then instead, he calls a dude named Carl Luce, who he doesn't like, because he only talks about sex and is a phony and also might be gay. But Holden is just so achingly desperate for human contact and or someone to buy him alcohol that he meets up with Luce at a bar. And they have a terrible time, because of course they do. And then Luce leaves, and Holden is very drunk. He drunkenly hits on a dancer in the bar and is ignored. He drunkenly hits on the Kochek woman, who's old enough to be his mom, and is told to put his stupid hat on, because it's cold outside. He goes outside, stumbles, and drops the record he bought for his sister that shatters into pieces and crying, picks up all the pieces and jams them in his pockets. This freaking kid. Um, Holden is so upset that he finally caves and goes home to see his sister, sneaking into his family's apartment and waking Phoebe up and talking with her. Phoebe's 10, but Holden says she's smarter than him and he's kind of right. She accepts his broken record pieces, intuits that he was kicked out of another boarding school and tells him in a sweet 10-year-old way to get his shit together. And Holden's like, I did nothing wrong, the school sucked, and made me depressed. And she's like, Holden, literally everything makes you depressed. Which, like, yeah, fair. She says, name just just one thing that you like. And his answer is their dead brother. Which isn't great. But yeah, a kid who is forever an innocent child that never has to change into a gross, phony adult does sound like something Holden is all about. Someone please get this kid into therapy, please. Someone. Oh, eventually he gets there. That's true, he does, but it should have been sooner. Phoebe asks Holden what he wants to do with his life, and we get the title drop as he thinks back to the song the little kid was singing about catching bodies in the rye, and says he wants to protect little kids playing some game in a field of rye near a cliff, and that if one kid gets too close to the cliff, he catches them. Just kid catching in the rye. It's not weird at all. Is rye the same thing as wheat? I believe so. Okay. Phoebe doesn't really know what to do with that and starts showing him cool burps she's learned how to do instead. What a 10-year-old. <laughs> yes, what 10-year-olds do. <laughs> oh. <coughs> or 33-year-olds. Oh, oh, you only had one letter in you. Uh, <laughs> okay, we're not, we're not, we don't have time to do the whole alphabet. Also, I think you might hurt yourself. Yes. <laughs> So Holden has to leave the apartment to escape his mother's notice and then resolves to call an old teacher from a few boarding schools back called Mr. Antolini, who's one of the few teachers that Holden didn't actively hate. 
He calls him, and it's still the middle of the night, mind you, and Holden's like, hey, can I come over? And Mr. Antolini's like, yeah, dude, totally. Which, like, um, okay, sure. That's not weird. So Holden comes over. <laughs> Mr. Antolini's there in a bathrobe and holding a drink, and, um, okay, sure, that's not weird. So Mr. Antolini is, like, the young, cool teacher. Holden says that he's only, like, maybe 10 years older than his brother, DB, and, yeah, he's like that teacher who sits backwards in a chair and is just like, I'm gonna rap with y'all, kids. School is cool. Anyway. Stained school. <laughs> Mr. Antolini's wife is significantly older than him, like, multiple decades, and she has lots of money, so he might be, like, her cabana boy or something. Except that apparently they don't even sleep in the same room, which suggests some- something else. Mr. Antolini and Holden smoke cigarettes, and Holden, who has had way more alcohol than food today, is dizzy and sick. Mr. Antolini lectures Holden about growing into a crusty old misanthrope, and that he should let himself be passionate about something, and he could change the world, and blah 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 blah. Holden don't care. Mr. Antolini's kinda drunk. He makes up a couch bed for Holden to spend the night on, and then Holden tells the readers that, uh, this next bit is... weird, and that he doesn't like to talk about it, and what that means is he wakes up to Mr. Antolini gently stroking his head. And Holden, quite reasonably, jumps off the couch and yells, What the hell are you doing? And Mr. Antolini is like, Oh, you know, just like admiring you in your sleep. That's what he says. I'm admiring. And hey, dude, could you maybe not? Can you admire from the other side of the room, possibly? And Holden's like, Okay, it's been real. Holden, out. And Mr. Antolini is like, You're such a strange boy, Holden. And um, maybe sometimes, but no, not in this particular instance. Now, You could maybe make the argument that this might have been a fairly innocent moment of a drunk dude who affectionately sees a kid as his own son or younger brother or something and is just, like, petting his head. But, I mean, that's still weird. And Holden tells us when this happens that he says that he always freaks out when, quote, perverty stuff like that happens to me. And that he says it's happened to him a whole bunch. Like, 20 times. Now... Holden uses the phrase, like, 20 a whole bunch of different times in the book to just show, like, a big exaggeration. Someone's done this 20 times, someone's, like, 20 years older, or this or that. But that still is is a lot. It, it still means more than once. Has Holden been fucking molested? Has Holden been molested multiple times? Has Mr. Antolini molested him, like, prior to this? Has Holden being molested multiple times led him to be suspicious of all adults' true intentions, as well as really confused and uncomfortable about sex? Maybe. Someone help this boy! And all he wants is to be listened to, as he keeps saying, hey, listen, but no one ever listens, except his sister. It's true. His sister is his only friend. Holden wanders around and and feels like absolute garbage, which isn't hard to believe given that he hasn't slept in over 24 hours and his food to cigarette ratio is very much not good. He crosses the street and prays out loud to Allie to not let him disappear. And I remember this, this is the one bit that really got me, that things started getting just like really surreal and hazy as Holden's mental state like deteriorates and he can't even make it across the street without feeling like he's just gonna fucking disintegrate. And that just always hit me really hard, which as a small teen with undiagnosed anxiety and also who had already experienced like small disassociative episodes that I didn't know were disassociative episodes because I didn't have a name for them, just read this bit and was like, yeah, same though. This, this is really relatable. So yeah, no, that, that scene just like really gets me. I don't know. 
He contemplates running away to the country and living as a deaf mute so that no one will ever bother him or try to talk to him, except he doesn't really want that, because he also wants to find a deaf mute girl there and marry her. So, like, he claims he doesn't want human contact, but he really, really does. Uh, he goes to Phoebe's school and sees a bunch of fuck you graffiti all over, and it pisses him off because little kids who don't know what fuck you means are gonna see it and be stripped of their innocence. So he tries to, like, rub them all out, but he can't, and he gives up. Because there's always going to be more fuck use. So you can't preserve kids' innocence forever. And do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get this really subtle metaphor, RJ? No. Do you get the symbolism? No. I know, it's just too subtle. He passes out in a bathroom because things are just going very badly for him right now. And Phoebe finds him and has a suitcase because she wants to run away with Holden to wherever he's going. Holden knows that's not a good idea. So instead he takes her to the zoo and watches her ride a carousel and it's beautiful and innocent and he sits in the pouring rain watching her and feels happy for the first time in however many days and starts crying again. And then we're back in the present. So someone at some point finally put this poor kid in like a fucking psychiatric hospital or something or whatever they called it back then. And he says he's going to get out soon and go back to school and that he misses everyone he ever knew. Even Stradlater, which is a weird one to go back to. And then the book ends. The end. That's the catcher in the rye. You, you weave out an important part with the carousel. Oh, that he, he comes at peace with this whole thing with people getting older and progression. Because for most of the novel, he sees it as linear. But it's through the carousel that he sees it as a cycle. Because the sister keeps winding up in the same place. And all these kids are reaching for some gold ring. Like well, yeah. a metaphor for the great Gatsby. Um, <laughs> but that she goes around and then she's back in the same place again. And so that getting older isn't necessarily linear. It's more cyclical. Cyclical? Cyclical. I suppose, I don't know if he reaches a great realization so much as his brain snaps in half. He becomes at peace with it. He cries. He cries. He also cries when he gets punched <laughs> in the stomach by a pimp. Yeah, but then he says he's happy for the first time in a long time. It's true. I, I read it as that, you know, he's seeing this very innocent scene and that he's able to sort of encapsulate this moment in time, which has kind of been his whole big thing. Because it's not lost forever. It's not linear. Okay. So let's talk about, I guess, adaptations and cultural influences. So there's never been a film version, like we said, of The Catcher in the Rye. Which is actually impressive to think about that the book is still popular, even though there have been like no adaptations. This is true, actually. <laughs> As most things that are popular in the mainstream that have a big following tended to be adapted into something at some point, and this has never been adapted into anything. No. So that that is actually impressive on that point. But yes, part of the reason it was never adapted was because, like you said, the, the disastrous Uncle Wiggly incident. And then also that J.D. Salinger was like, no, only I can play Holden and I'm an adult man, so no one's going to play Holden. And pretty much every actor ever has wanted the coveted role of the angsty boy, like every serious male actor of like the last 30 to 40 years. Um, Apparently Spielberg got really close to getting the right. He did, but then he didn't. And then he didn't. There have been a couple films about Salinger himself, though, including Coming Through the Rye, which I actually really want to... haven't been able to watch by the time he recorded this, but I do really want to watch it because it sounds interesting. It's a mostly autobiographical story um, about this kid in the 60s journeying to find Salinger because he is trying to adapt the book into a play. So he, like, drives off to go find him to get the rights to perform the play at his school. And I want to watch that because that sounds interesting. And then a movie that came out about a year ago called Rebel in the Rye. 
where Nicholas Holt plays like a young Salinger, and the cover alone convinces me that it just looks dumb as hell. He's just standing there, like, surrounded by smoke or whatever in, like, a bullshit James Dean-looking outfit. Like, you want to talk about looking phony. In my 11th grade English class, though, we didn't have any of that. And my teacher, who had managed to pair a movie with basically everything else we'd read, The Great Gatsby, The Scarlet Letter, The Crucible, The Old Man in the Sea, must have been, like, kind of desperate, because she had us watch Finding Forrester. <laughs> Which is kind of a story about J.D. Salinger. I mean, oh, the man now, dog. Are you... Wow. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, wait, Jesus. I didn't even get to the point where I tell you that Sean Connery's in the movie, so I gave it to... So... Sure, the man now, dog. Oh my god. It's the story Shut of up. it's the story of a black kid living in the projects who gets accepted to a prep school because he's a very good basketball player, but he's also a genius writer. And he accidentally discovers a famous writer living the recluse life in a rundown apartment who had vanished from the world after writing one really good novel. Also, he's Sean Connery. Shaw. Sure. Yep, that's how he sounds. <laughs> They, yeah. they, they they bond, everyone learns lessons about he racism bond, right. and uh, friendship. And Sean Connery says, you're the man now, dog, which became an early internet meme. So, you know, there's that. This is how Sean Connery sounds. Not like how you were doing it. You were doing it badly. When this episode comes out, you put that on the Twitter poll. Who did the better <laughs> Sean Connery accents? Okay. Yeah. I'll win. So, also, in the anime Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, there's a terrorist hacker dude called The Laughing Man, which is the title of a short, uh, different short story by Salinger, and whose logo has the quote, I thought what I'd do was I'd pretend I was one of those deaf mutes, and is meant to be an explicit reference to Catcher in the Rye, and our friend Zeke had it on a keychain, because he loved Ghost in the Shell so much. In 2009, just one year before Salinger's death, a Swedish dude by the name of Frederick Kulting attempted to publish what was essentially fan fiction, a story of old Holden Caulfield escaping a nursing home and once again dicking around in New York. And Salinger was like, um, no, and also fuck you, and successfully barred the book from being published in the U.S. Kulting's response was a very pissy, oh, I didn't know the U.S. was into banning books, yeah, which, like, dude, A- as we've just said, we are super into banning books, or at least attempting to ban them. And B, the book wasn't in the public domain, and you're just salty that Salinger caught on to your fanfic bullshit before you could make a buck off it. At least when E.L. James published Fifty Shades, she changed their fucking names. Anastasia, I need you. Come to the Red Room. Yes, Edward, I mean Christian. Yeah. Although doesn't... Fifty Shades of Grey also take place in the Pacific Northwest, or just... It, yeah, it takes place in Seattle instead of Forks, Washington. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, kids, I guess, are just disaffected in a way that's different from how they were disaffected in the 50s, and that's just time, man. Like, kids are always gonna angst, but not in the same way, and today kids maybe aren't gonna identify with Holden as much because they're too busy get worrying about getting murdered when someone who does identify with Holden shoots up a school. Which is not to say... That if you ever related to Holden Caulfield, you're the kind of person who will shoot up a school, obviously. But gosh, a lot of white dudes seem to read the book and be like, yes, this this supports my go-shoot-people ideology. And Salinger didn't want that, obviously. I think it's a pretty fair assumption. Do you think Jesus wanted people to read the Bible and kill in his name? No, probably not. But white dudes are really good at twisting text to suit their own ends. Like with Fight Club, for instance, a story written by a gay man about the fragility of masculinity and how toxic it can be that's revered by no homo frack dudes. So, you know, death of the author and all that. So what you're saying is the Anglican Church 
I shouldn't have let them buy that spot on the show. You might not have. I mean, we can't speak for the entire Anglican Church, just like we can't speak for the entirety of Christian science or whatever. We can't speak for the entirety of Scientology. That's bullshit. Bro, watch out, man. They got people who listen to this shit. They'll hunt you down. Yeah. Yeah. The Scientologists will hunt me down. Yeah. John Travolta's going to be waiting outside my house. They might. Bring it, Travolta. Coming clear. I think going it's going clear. I think it's going clear. Yeah. I will beat the fuck out of John Travolta. Tom Cruise I'm a little more afraid of. Tom Cruise can can run. There you go. He's got speed. He's like it follows. But anyway, there's a lot to unpack here because Holden is kind of a little fucker, but Holden is also really just sad and desperate and just dealing with like a debilitating mental breakdown that no one is acknowledging. And so I feel like, you know, while you're reading it, you might just be like, why do I care about this pissy teenager? That is writing it off as something a little too simple. Hey, RJ. Sup? Catcher in the rye. Yep. Good, bad, or caught? I'd catch those kids. I don't want them to fall. I would hope so. Catch them, kids. Catch no, them. It's a, I believe kid. it's a good book. That you never had to read. Oh, just because I didn't have to read it doesn't mean I didn't read it. Okay. But I wasn't required. Ah. Like I said, I, I think one of the better things about the novel is it's a lot about the language. It's a, you know There's a lot going on that's not on the surface that there is this kind of battle between Holden kind of looking at things kind of a, in a linear kind of fashion and then realizing maybe you don't have to look at it that way. Struggling with finality. I know you referred to like the brother who died and how he had the poems on the mitts. And then he talks about the brother in present tense. He talks to the brother. Yeah. Like a few and times. then he just like ends that paragraph. Like he's dead now. Like that's it. Like finality. No more. And as we've also talked about that you have to think about if this was someone who's a victim of some sort of sexual abuse and he's basically crying out for help and everyone's kind of ignoring him. You know, a guy pointed out that he starts off a lot of lines of dialogue of, hey, listen, and no one listens. Um, hey, listen. That was very inappropriate. Um, but yeah, no, like everybody is totally content to lecture him and tell him to get his shit together without realizing that like something is very wrong here. Maybe there's a reason this kid is like flunked out of like five different boarding schools. And I think it's also interesting that a lot of Salinger's colleagues, especially those who served in World War II, came back and wrote about war you know, or things similar to war, where he decided, yeah, I'm going to write about some disaffected teenager. As many people who have known him have also said upon reading the book that Holden is is Salinger, essentially. And I know that we've had conversations before where it's like, don't just assume that the author is writing about themselves, but... Uh, many people, including his own daughter, have attested to the fact that reading it, and they're like, yeah, like th- there's huge autobiographical chunks of this, and it's probably the reason why Salinger is like, I am the only one who will play Holding Caulfield. I mean, but then you say, yeah, well, kids today you know, don't see themselves as Holding Caulfield, because what did Holden have to worry about? Well, then if it's really Salinger, and he's writing as Salinger, as he only sees himself playing the role, he was thinking about getting sent off to Europe to go look at concentration camps, and smell burning flesh. Kids today don't got those worries. No, not really. Um, Well, that's the thing, and that's what I was saying, is that's not even meant to be, like, a detraction. Like I said, kids are always going to angst, but they're going to be angsting for different reasons just based on the time that they're living in. Kids got different things to angst about now, and the horrors of World War II are are not one of them, but there's plenty of other shit going on. I mean, I brought up the school shooting thing. Kids got plenty of shit going on. Um... 
Also, the problem you get is when a 15-year-old reads something, a lot of times they're going to read it on the surface level. So they might, you know, they might miss certain things and they will read it as like, this kid is just super duper whiny, this rich white boy. Yes, he is a rich white boy. Yes, he is super whiny. But mental illness don't care. You could have all the fucking money in the world and if your brain wants to eat itself, that's just what's going to happen. And so, I mean, that's part of it too. Is so maybe I should ask you. Empathy. So Megan. <laughs> Catch her in the eye. Catch her. Your thoughts as you continue. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. Like I said, I have a lot of complicated feelings about it, I guess. I I definitely don't really dislike it. I think there are parts of it that are kind of annoying. I think Holden is kind of annoying, but um, I also definitely think rereading it as an adult, I have more empathy for him, which is interesting because everybody's always said, oh, you got to read it when you're 15. When you read it when you're 15, you're like, yeah, adults suck. I do agree. Everyone is a stupid bastard, but I didn't really relate to it that much when I read it. Uh, The bits that I did relate to were the mental illness bits, which in retrospect, yeah. But no, reading it as an adult actually gave me more room to have empathy for Holden and to kind of see clearly more like the situation he was in and, you know, what we both have just been saying about how he is just reaching out for help and no one is interested in giving it to him. Except his 10-year-old sister, who is not equipped to do that. She does her best, but she's also 10, and she burps. <laughs> Happens. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a good book. I feel like I'm letting people down by saying that, but that's, that's how it is. And so, that brings us to the end of this episode of Onola oh Class. If you want to catch us when we're coming through the rye, you can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the Facebook group. You can hit us up on Twitter at Pod or harass RJ, please, on Twitter at RJ underscore Onolicklass. And I'd like to give a shout out to all of our lovely, amazing, awesome, too cool for the human language, but I'll do my best, patrons, including Chris at at Play Comics, who's also the host of Play Comics Podcast, Ariel, Melina, whose name I just absolutely butchered on our last episode and i feel extremely bad about that please please continue to love us melina i'm sorry ben uh who's at canis not not anus as he said although it's i'm sorry ben at canis jm uh and also alex and janet and tanner and jen and the not alone podcast at not alone pod and Rob, who's at your UFO guy, I feel like I ought to specify that's uh, Y-E-R, like at your UFO guy, and also the host of Our Strange Skies, um, and our newest patron, Lucas. So, thank you guys. You can pledge to our Patreon, patreon.com slash class. You get stickers and posters and shirts and the ability to decide what we do next in and terms of what books if you live in a cool place we might come to your town and hand deliver it. we might we might hand deliver poster to you which chris at, at play comics got to experience we met uh we met him we met uh josh hallmark of our americana and playlist and the karen and ellen letters and we met steven from is this adulting meeting all of them was really cool also cool there's the Brain Trust Network, which we are a part of, which is just has more shows growing by the day. Like we mentioned, like Play Comics, like Life, Death, and Taxonomy, uh, The Pyramid, and most recently, There Might Be Cupcakes, which is a very good show that talks a lot about chronic illness, actually. So you can go check that out. Thank you to Best Day, as always, for our intro song. The next episode will be on... May 24th. That. Until then... 
I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you, you phonies. Bye. And this brings me to this week's episode of Jew Rules. <laughs> Jews rule maximum Jewishness campus crawl tour. Wait, <laughs> what? You just started going. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.